Eating has become a confusing experience. Should we follow a keto diet? Is sugar the next tobacco? What's with probiotics? Can packaging contaminate food? We all have questions, and Dr. Joe Schwartz has the answers. He is the author and a professor at McGill University. He is the director of McGill's Office for Science and Society, which is dedicated to demystifying science for the public. He's also the author of A Grain of Salt, the Science and Pseudoscience of What We Eat. And he joins me in studio. Nice to see you. Hi, Richard. So you've written a lot of books about food, about medicine, about science, about how we interact uh, with all of that sort of thing. Um, Who are these books for? Are they just for the casual uh, person off the street who might be interested in, in, uh, you know, improving their lives through a better diet? I I would say that it's for anyone who is interested in what life is all about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I try to make sure that the uh, topics in there are up-to-date and understandable without being trivial. So I I do put in the science, but I explain it all. Mm -hmm. I don't expect anyone to have any kind of real significant background in order to be able to to understand. And these days, of course, our life revolves around science. I mean, whether we're talking cosmetics, whether we're talking about the medications we're taking, the food that we eat, our exercise habits, vaping... Of course, I mean, these are all issues that are in the news every day. And unfortunately, there's a lot of confusion about many of these issues, which is uh, just the way science works. Uh, Science, as I like to say, is a race towards a finish line, Mm -hmm. but we never quite get there. The finish line always seems to be receding, but we do get closer and closer to it. And uh, very often, the more studies we carry out, the more questions are raised. Answers are very hard to come by because science is not um, a white or black business. It's many shades of gray. And uh, in virtually every study, there are confounders, you know, that you have to take into account. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to come to absolute conclusions. We can make uh, some interesting, you know, observations on on all of these studies and and sort of uh, have a guide uh, about what we should be orienting ourselves to. But any time that anyone gives uh, absolute concrete advice, very dangerous thing, <laughs> because almost guaranteed that the next day or the day after, there will be some other study. A new study kind of, says yes. eating meat is actually good for you. Yes, yeah. and, and this, of course, has recently been a very controversial issue, because over the years, we've had a number of studies that have um, uh, focused on meat and have shown that populations that eat less meat, although not no meat, Mm -hmm. just less meat, tend to be healthier. And uh, then we had uh, this uh, series of studies come out in the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine, which seemed to turn the whole nutritional world upside down with comments that, no, you really don't have to worry about eating meat and eating processed meat. Well, one thing that I always like to point out whenever it comes to to, uh, nutritional studies is that one study uh, never makes a a huge enough difference to allow us to change our course of action. We look for consensus. We look to see what all the studies say. And uh, we have really had a very large number of studies showing uh, meat consumption linked to colorectal cancer. Uh, Exactly why that is, uh, you know, it's a matter of much debate. 
there's a lot of suspicion on heme iron, uh, which is present in meat and not in vegetable products, being a factor, because that kind of iron uh, can lead to the formation of free radicals in the intestine. And, and even people who don't know what free radicals are have heard enough about these to mm -hmm. know that these are rogue species that should probably be uh, Yeah, avoided. it's something you don't want. Yeah. So we've had a lot of studies uh, like that. And now we have um, uh, this series of, of studies that suggest that, uh, no, the evidence really isn't all that strong. Now, that is true. The evidence isn't all that strong, but it does lean towards eating less meat. And um, these studies say that, you know, all of uh, the previous studies are based on very weak evidence. Well, weak evidence is not zero evidence. Mm -hmm. So while it is true that uh, eating meat may not be a gigantic risk factor for colorectal cancer, but it is a factor. And some people will, of course, uh, benefit from eating less meat. And are, is this kind of uncertainty, one study says this, another study says this, we all live on social media now, we've got our phones in our hands all the time, uh, and I know on my Facebook or Twitter pages or whatever it is, I'm seeing a new study that says, drink yeah. three glasses of wine a day and you'll be fine, drink. And uh, we've also seen, with this proliferation of social media, we've also seen people stepping away from the experts. Nobody, uh, people are less inclined to trust science now. They seem to think that they know better than people that have studied uh, for years and years and years to learn this. Yes. But is it because you think we are bombarded with so much information that our mind looks for patterns and we look for, you know, the kind of simplest, like we have to get from A to B somehow, and I'm going to make that path in my head, no matter what the experts say. Yes. You know, it's unfortunate that um, this distrust has, has evolved. And it is because of this apparent pendulum that swings back and forth. But I say apparent, because if you follow the real hardcore scientific research, especially in the area of nutrition, the advice has not changed mm -hmm. all that much over the years. It, it has been eat mostly plant products and eat it in moderation. Drink water. Yes, yes and yes. that that really hasn't changed. What has changed is the uh, advent of social media, mm -hmm. where anyone can say anything, anyone can become an expert, a self-declared expert, and uh, they are often very good at what they do. They can sound very, very seductive. Mm -hmm. And uh, they give people the kind of advice that people want, you know, uh, simple solutions to complex yeah. problems. If you want to avoid, you know, the tragedy of cancer, all you have to do is, you know, the drink goji juice or eat acai berries or whatever happens. To yams. When I had cancer, people got in touch and they said, eat yams. The tumors will disappear. Do not do chemo. And you're well now. Um, I did so, not so, eat yams. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I had some yams. I did not eat exclusively yams. <laughs> right. But maybe it was that small maybe amount that of small yams. Maybe that small amount of that yams did it. Did it. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, um, another sort of unfortunate thing these days is that with all of the publications that are coming out constantly, you know, it, it's like trying to drink from, from a fire hydrant. Mm -hmm. Every minute or every day, there are five new scientific publications that, that appear. It's very hard to keep abreast of this. And these publications can be good, they can be bad, mostly they are mediocre. Mm -hmm. But of course, the average person doesn't know how to make that distinction. They don't know how to evaluate the, the studies. 
And uh, that leads to a lot of confusion. Whereas when you look at the sort of the emperors of social media, people like the food babe, you know, yeah, who, yeah. Have, who have accrued a large following without having any scientific background, but they will pontic pontificate on issues that they know nothing about and give very simple, seductive answers. All you have to do to avoid cancer is eat organic, mm -hmm. you know, things like that, which, of course, does not make any scientific sense. And what this, this has led to is a condition that is being talked about more and more called orthorexia, uh, which is sort of a, a, just an overemphasized view of, of nutrition and of what it can and cannot do and a worry about everything that, that we eat. Is this not also the theory that the, and this is, sounds so harsh, the dumbest person in the room has, and, and there's a new name for this, has the, the sense that they're the smartest person in the room because they don't know enough to know that they don't know everything. Yes, yes. And this is becoming an increasing problem mm -hmm. because they can suck up a few key words from the internet yeah. and then all of a sudden <clears throat> sound like an expert, you know, even though they don't know what, what they're talking about. Uh, nutrition is a very confusing business, uh, which isn't surprising because food is such a complex mixture of chemicals. You know, you sniff a cup of coffee and you're sniffing a thousand compounds. Mm -hmm. The number of compounds that you take in during a day in your food, your water, is, is hundreds of thousands. And you're putting these into the human body, the most complex machine in the face of the earth. You can't come up with a simple solution to health unless you're simple-minded. But there are a lot of simple-minded people out there, you know, who buy into, into uh, the argument that uh, if you just eat this or drink that, uh, problems going to be solved. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that nutrition doesn't advance. It, it does. I mm -hmm. mean, we are learning more and more. Uh, one very interesting uh, area that we're looking at now is, is what we refer to as chrononutrition, uh, which is the study not only of what people eat, but when they eat it which is, is interesting because there's a lot of stuff being published now about various kinds of fasts. Uh, there's the 5-2 fast, right. where you know for five days you eat normally about 2,000 calories, and for two days of the week you cut back to only about 500 calories. Then there's the uh, fast where after 6 o'clock at night you don't eat anything until morning, mm -hmm. or the eight-hour fast when for one particular eight-hour period during the day, you eat and nothing else outside of that. And each of these has some scientific foundation, and they've published research on this, and they show that in case of weight loss, it, it works. Question is why? Are we really changing something in, in our metabolism? Or is it just that, that whichever pattern of fasting you choose means that you're going to be eating fewer calories? I think uh, well, that's the answer to uh, it. As someone who recently lost 30 pounds and is looking to lose more, I will tell you that for me, it was all about uh, changing my, not going on a diet, but changing my lifestyle, changing what I ate, changing how I ate it, uh, but most importantly, portion control. It's the most boring part of the whole thing you know, because yeah. you want every meal to be an event yeah. and, and it can't be if you're trying to lose weight. Cockroach milk, is that a real thing? Well, uh, 
<laughs> it's a real thing in the sense that there have been articles written about it, but it isn't exactly what that term implies. Yeah. Who has to milk yeah. these cockroaches? Uh, That's yeah, what that I want to know. Quite a job, right? <laughs> well, obviously, cockroaches do not produce right. uh, any any milk, but there is a species of cockroach that that uh, uh, produces offspring uh, without needing a male, which is interesting in yeah. and of itself, right? And uh, they feed their offspring uh, these uh, crystals that, that they actually produce. And this has come to be called cockroach milk. Right. And when you take a, a look at the chemistry of these crystals, it's interesting, as one would expect, because they nourish the young. So they have a good blend of proteins, fats, carbohydrates, etc. And it's excellent for the young of cockroach. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, of course, social media got a hold of this, and all of a sudden, this becomes the future miracle that, yeah. you know, we'll be consuming cockroach milk, as, as they call it. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I think what we actually need to do is stomp on some of these advocates of nonsense well, as like if it, they were cockroaches. But <laughs> in a world where people will eat crickets and that kind of thing now, I mean, if you go to a, a number of years ago, uh, you know, 15 years ago, I was in Thailand and I remember buying uh, crickets on the side of the road. You could buy them. They were yes. deep fried and they, they, were, they just taste salty and deep fried and it's a protein source and, and is quite common there. In North America, it was certainly less common. Now I go to my local mega mart up the road from where I live and there's a cricket section. There is a section with cricket flour. Uh, there are dried crickets. And so, I mean, in a world where you can now buy cricket flour and dried crickets, uh, cockroach milk doesn't seem like that much of a leap. <laughs> right. Well, uh, Scientifically, though, uh, cricket flour and all these cr uh, cricket extracts, uh, as you said, are a good source of protein. Mm -hmm. And when we're looking at uh, uh, the increase in population and having to feed about 10 billion people by 2025, yeah. we do have to look for alternate sources of, of protein. And uh, insects are, are such. Mm -hmm. uh, now, of course, in, in North America, we have an aversion to eating insects. But there's nothing wrong with them. Uh, I mean, you know, why, why uh, does someone's mouth water at the thought of eating the rear end of a cow? Right? <laughs> that, that's what steak is, right? But they don't want to touch yeah. uh, uh, crickets. So, no, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with uh, uh, cricket powder, cricket milk, as uh, they call it. Well, the, this this cockroach milk thing just made me think of like Franz Kafka. Will we turn into cockroach? Will we eventually right. sort of metamorphosize <laughs> into that? Well, as some people are turning into cockroaches and rats and, and uh, whatever else we want to emphasize. But Richard, you know, just earlier we were when we were talking about your weight loss. Yes. And uh, portion control, of course, is 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 the key yeah. because the laws of thermodynamics will never be repealed. Mm -hmm. So it is always a question of calories in and calories out. But it's much more complicated than that because. Uh, when we measure calorie content of food, this is done in the laboratory. And that isn't exactly the way that the body works. The body is not a giant test tube. Right. So uh, 100 calories of fat and 100 calories of carbs in the lab may not work the same way in, in, in the body. Uh, so one has to you know, take a look more carefully at, at the diet. And uh, the keto diet, of course, is being pushed a, a lot these days. It Everyone talks to me yeah. about this. Now, I, I chose not to do, and I know, I know I'll get letters about this. Uh, it's a fad diet, I suppose, and, and, but I chose not to do a fad diet. I chose to really eliminate the word diet from my vocabulary and change everything else. 
you know, change my lifestyle, change the way I ate, stop snacking, stop, you know, I have an odd job. I'm just, I'm out all the time. It's hard to, you know, maintain portion control and that kind of thing, but I've managed to do it. The keto diet, I know people say it works brilliantly for them, but my understanding of it is that people will frequently lose a great deal of weight fairly quickly trouble is keeping it off exactly. for, you know, two, three, four, or five yeah. years. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt that over the short term, uh, eliminating carbs from your diet is going to make you lose weight. Mm-hmm. Because when you don't have carbs, which is the body's main source of energy, the body has to turn to alternate sources. So it will start burning protein, start burning fat. Burning protein is not a good idea as far as the body goes because yeah. it doesn't want to use up its tissues. Right. So it turns to fat and uh, produces these ketone bodies when the uh, fat is burned, which supposedly cuts down on the appetite. Well, I don't say supposedly because they do lose weight. Mm-hmm. There's no, no question about it. But as you said, long term, that's the real query. And what the studies show that after about a year, uh, the results of any diet are about the same. Uh, most people gain the weight back. And the ones who manage to keep it off, uh, it doesn't matter what diet they followed. It's it's the willpower really that allows them to do it. Well, that's the boring part of it, right? Yeah. That's the part that, uh, you know, I, and, and I get it. I've struggled with weight on and off, you know, for years. And the, these diets come on and they promise results and they promise that it's going to be fast and easy and stuff. And and the fact of the matter is it's not all that easy. It's and you just easy. have to have willpower, but anything that's worth doing, you know, and is, is, is going to be probably a little bit difficult. And the marketers of course get into the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we know scientifically when you're on a keto diet and the body starts burning fat, it produces these so-called ketone bodies like acetone and mm-hmm. beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate, which can be tested for in the urine. So you know that you're in ketosis, losing right. weight. Now, the marketers have gone into this and they start selling pills made of these components with the insinuation that this is going to trick the body into losing weight. But there's no evidence for right. that whatsoever. But unfortunately, when it comes to selling dietary supplements, uh, the need for evidence comes way down the mm-hmm. list. And Health Canada is, is part of the problem because there are too many dietary supplements that are approved without having any uh, evidence. And, and I think what they do, which is the most kind of nefarious part of all of this, is that they offer false hope. And it is to me like the person and well, persons who got in touch with me when I had cancer and said, oh, eat yams, yams will work. And, and yams seemed to be the thing, the overwhelming amount of people got in touch with me about that. And I'm sure yams are delicious. I like them. No, uh, no disrespect to yams or the yam farmers out there. Uh, but uh, it offers hope where I think um, it, it gets people's expectations up and they will only be thwarted after that. We talked a little bit about uh, packaging and how packaging can contaminate food. Or I guess the question is, can packaging contaminate food? Absolutely. Anytime two surfaces come into contact, there will be an exchange of material from mm-hmm. one to the other. And today we can investigate that in, in excruciating detail Mm -hmm. uh, because of my colleagues, the analytical chemists, who can measure things down to parts per trillion. Now, this is is just amazing, even to someone who's spent a life in chemistry, to be able to 
find things down to parts per mm-hmm. trillion. A part per trillion is the width of a credit card in the distance between the Earth and the Moon. <laughs> we can find this. Do we have to worry about our can of cream corn? Well, this is the but, thing. Yeah. It is, numbers matter in science. We're always making measurements. We're comparing numbers. Just because a chemical is present doesn't mean that it's doing something. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, just because it is present in very small amounts doesn't mean it's not doing something. The dose does make the poison, but that dose can be very small. For example, botulin, which is the toxin natural, of course, yeah. produced by the uh, Clostridium botulinum bacterium, a fraction of a microgram can kill someone. So sometimes that dose can be very small. Now, in the, in the case of uh, packaging, what we worry about are some of these so-called perfluoro compounds, perfluoroalkyl substances. And these are used in order to make packaging impermeable to water and to fats. Because when you get your takeout French fries, which of course you shouldn't be getting in the first place, but when you get your takeout French fries, you don't want that bag to be soggy and and your hand full of grease. Uh, same thing for pizzas. When you order home delivery for a pizza, which of course you shouldn't be doing, <laughs> but but the, that box you want it to stay nice yeah. and 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 clean. Now, in order to do this, there are a set of compounds, these so-called perfluorinated alkyl substances, that are very adept at doing that job. But then, because we can now measure things down to very low levels, you find some of these present in the food. some of it in the drinking water because all the processing plants that manufacture these, you know, there's refuse and gets gets into the environment. The question is, what harm is it doing? As I said, with most of these issues, we can't have a yes or no no Mm -hmm. answer. What we know is that when you feed some of these substances in high doses to test animals, you can trigger all kinds of problems, from inflammation to to diabetes to to cancer. But the human is not a giant rat. Some exceptions, (laughs) no. But as a general rule, that is not the case. And furthermore, we are not exposed to the same amount. And the thinking in terms of toxicology is that if we take a rodent and you expose it to a high dose over a uh, short time, because they only live a short time, mm-hmm. you can get an idea for what that substance might do to a human in small doses over a much longer period. Well, we do this because you cannot do the experiment in humans ethically. You can't take two groups of people and expose one to a right. suspicious yeah, compound yeah. and follow them for, okay? So we make some educated guesses, but that's what they are, educated guesses. Uh, I think that there's no doubt that it would be better not to have these perfluorinated compounds in the environment. But everything has to be weighed on the risk-benefit. What are we going to do if we don't use this? Are there any substitutes? Right. And perhaps the idea, too, is that you would have to order a pizza three times a day for six months for that compound to actually harm you. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's the thinking. But on the other hand, we can't prove that that isn't the case. Yeah. Because it is certainly possible that very small amounts of some substance consumed over a very long period of time 
can cause problems. On the other hand, we also know that human life expectancy is getting longer and longer every year. And uh, yes, I know that there's the word out there that there's more cancer and all of this, mm -hmm. which is true on an absolute number case, but not when you're looking at a population and you're looking at the age-adjusted cancer rates. Cancer is an age-related disease. So the longer the uh, average life expectancy, obviously the more cases you will get because something eventually is going to get you. So and, that if and, we, and dementia would be probably absolutely. falling into that with absolutely. an aging population. These are the diseases we'll see. And if you cure one disease or treat one disease effectively, then whatever it was the second biggest cause is going to become number one. Right. So because we are more and more effective at preventing and treating heart disease, cancer is now becoming more important. But if you look at the age-adjusted cancer rates, there's not much variation, except I, I must say there's one concern in children. There are some cancers that are increasing in children, and nobody knows exactly why that is. Is it possible that it's due to some environmental contaminant? Absolutely, mm -hmm. because there are substances out there in the environment that are carcinogens. Vaping. This is something that over the last month, I would say, all of a sudden, people are falling ill. We're hearing about popcorn lung. We are hearing about uh, what was meant to be a cessation device for helping people to get off cigarettes uh, is causing all sorts of problems now. We just have a few minutes left in this segment. What's your take on this? Uh Inhaling something into your lungs is not going to do you good. This is this is for sure. Uh, in terms of these, rather, but what if it smells like pina colada and right. it's just mist? Uh, <laughs> some of these, uh, you know, novel devices, like yeah. like you said, have all kinds of seductive uh, features. Um, the reason that vaping was introduced in the first place was in order to try to get people to give up smoking because it still delivers the nicotine, mm -hmm. but it doesn't deliver the uh, terrible hydrocarbons. And, and it gave you the feeling that you were doing yes, something with yes. your hand and all that sort of thing. And it's just mist. That's what I was always told. I've never vaped, but that's what I was always told. It's just mist. And now, well, it isn't just mist because yeah. we know that the solvent propylene glycol can break down and can form formaldehyde, for example. Uh, you have vitamin E acetate as a preservative in there. We know that that may be the problem because we're seeing these new respiratory diseases. What isn't clear is whether this is the tip of an iceberg or there are just some random mm -hmm. cases. Uh, my concern is that the efficacy of getting people to give up smoking by using by vaping has not been very well demonstrated. Uh, people are not that successful in giving up smoking. They they will switch to to vaping, and very often they will go back. And the other concern is that kids who have been told that vaping is is safer. Teenagers start out vaping, and they then may graduate to, to smoking. So I, I'm not in favor of, of, of vaping. Uh, I mean, the only time that I think it ever makes sense when someone trying to quit smoking, if they have tried everything, and you know, but but uh, I, I think that we're uh, we don't want to make the same mistake as we made with smoking. But it is like losing weight. The only way you're going to do it really is through willpower. I mean, there are devices that can help you, Champex, things like that, I suppose. But willpower is your best tool in the in the toolkit against smoking. And things like 
you know, the vaping and, and all that other stuff, uh, to me as a cessation device, uh, doesn't really make sense in that if it was strictly a cessation device, why do they have flavors that taste right. so great? Why can you buy them at a corner store? If it is a medical device, let's treat it like a medical device. They have to go to their doctor. You go and you get, you know, a certain amount of, of vape juice and, and your, and your delivery system and, and it decreases over time. And perhaps that's the way to do it. If you're getting the full blast of nicotine, you're never going to let it go. And there's another concern that, that I often hesitate to mention in public, but I'll mention it anyway, because I think it's important is that the amount of nicotine that is present in these little bottles that are used to fill up the, yeah. the e-cigarette, the amount of nicotine in there is enough to kill someone. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, the flavors may attract children and they may drink this thing, mm -hmm. which there has been a case where that actually has happened. So that's that's a, a, a real concern. I mentioned earlier a line I never thought I would say on the radio. Should our nuts be activated? I don't even know really what that means. Uh, I don't activate my nuts. <laughs> they're, they're fine the way they are. I, I, I buy them in the store. Mm -hmm. uh, I buy the roasted, unsalted yep. almonds, cashews, etc., and I find no need to activate them. Now, what do people do who activate yeah. their nuts? What does that mean? They buy, buy the same nuts, and then they soak them very often for a couple of hours uh, or overnight in, in, in water because they say that this causes some germination. Now, nuts, of course, are seeds from which mm -hmm. plants can grow. And um, the claim is that they will produce more nutrients by soaking them. Uh, even though there may be some semblance of truth to that, there may be a slight increase in, in the uh, compounds that they produce. In the context of overall diet, it's to totally irrelevant. Mm -hmm. uh, eating nuts, though, is not irrelevant. Uh, we know that there are significant benefits. The kind of fats that are found in, in nuts are, are uh, the, quote, healthy kind of, of fats. There have been studies showing that people who eat nuts for snacks instead of, you know, the other stuff that they would mm -hmm. eat for snacks are, are better off. So, no, I don't think that there's a need to activate your nuts, <laughs> but I think it's a good idea to snack on nuts. I mean, it's probably not going to hurt you. One way or the other, it but it's going to hurt you. But it's yeah. but it's not it's yes. not really doing anything. And let, let's just make clear: we're talking about edible nuts that you buy yeah, yeah, in exactly. the supermarket. Yeah, yeah. You, don't, you don't you yeah. don't sit in a bathtub trying to activate <laughs> something else. <laughs> uh, one of the chapters in the book, uh, "A Grain of Salt: The Science and Pseudoscience of What We Eat," is, and I like this uh, chapter heading: "What is Tom Brady's alkaline twaddle?" <laughs> Oh, so I'll use yeah. your chapter heading as a, as a question for you. Good, it. good. Uh, it's unarguable that Tom Brady is probably the finest quarterback who ever played the mm -hmm. game. Uh, and uh, he has an alkaline diet. He also has a very strict exercise regimen, all of that. And uh, he's written books on his diet. Now, why should anyone think that Tom Brady has an expertise in, 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 in nutrition? Which he, he well, because he's famous and rich. Yes. And he's got a, uh, an advisor who has a very, very checkered history. Uh, we'll, we'll just leave <laughs> it at that. But anyway, his, uh, Tom Brady's diet is the so-called alkaline diet. Uh, this is a total bogus idea. Uh, the notion is that that uh, disease in the body requires acidity, and if you can alkalize the body, you are preventing that. 
Nothing that you eat is going to alter the pH of your blood. The blood is what we call a buffered system. The pH is around 7.35, and it doesn't matter what you what you eat. It is not going to be uh, altered uh, because the body uh, wants to maintain homeostasis. It wants to maintain things in a healthy way, and it can neutralize the excess alkalinity or excess acidity. Okay. Furthermore, it should be understood that the stomach is acidic. The pH of the stomach is, is, is very low, and no matter what alkaline foods you eat, it's going to be neutralized in, 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 in the stomach. So this business of alkaline diet, alkaline water is total, total nonsense. However, the fact is that an alkaline diet is mostly fruits, vegetables, and, and whole grains, which is something that, that everyone is advocating. Right. But not for that reason. Right. It, it, it's know? a healthy diet for the wrong reason. Uh, exactly. Exactly. But what uh, it amounts to is that some people will now start drinking alkaline water, mm-hmm. which is a total scam, uh, because Tom Brady talks about you know alkaline uh, diets. Well, the last time you were here, we talked about uh, a lot of celebrity-endorsed you know, yeah. trends. Jenny McCarthy's name came up, Suzanne Summers probably, you know, these these people who are famous for one thing who are all of a sudden medical experts. And, you know, when Suzanne Summers was was uh, advertising her fitness things, there was no question that, you know, she looked great, looked like she was fit. So people went, oh, well, I mean, that thing will work for me. That little leg squeeze thing that she yes. sold will, will work for me. What MP, and, and, and that is fairly benign, but it was later when she started writing about uh, treating disease and that kind of thing. I just thought it was really dangerous, and I wonder how people get away with it. Well, because uh, we live in a society where uh, we are guaranteed freedom of speech. Yeah. And uh, freedom from nonsense is, is, <laughs> is a co- completely different uh, notion. And anyone can uh, write anything they want unless you know they slander someone, and even that is a difficult uh, thing to do. So it's, it's always, uh, you have to be always careful when you listen to the celebrities because they don't have scientific background. Uh, just because you're famous doesn't mean that you're knowledgeable, uh, you know. And uh, maybe the the best example these days is Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow, who has amassed an empire, multi multi million dollar business, mm-hmm. essentially selling twaddle, you know. I mean, selling jade eggs that you put into a part of the body where no jade eggs should ever be put, uh, selling uh, uh, vampire spray. Uh, which I'm, has, not, I'm not familiar with not that familiar one. With that, it's concentrated moonlight in it. I mean, I mean, some of the stuff she does is, I, <laughs> I think, somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Right. But nevertheless, it sells. Yeah. And she is into the alkaline diet, into you know selling uh, alkaline water and, and numerous kind of bogus dietary supplements. But she speaks well. Mm-hmm. She's a very nice-looking lady. And then, of course, she has the background of, of having been a, a, a very good actress. Yeah. And she's still a very good actress. Yep. Now she's playing the role of nutritional guru. <laughs> and she does this uh, extremely well. And she's making a lot of uh, money with this, selling stuff that, that really is, is, uh, is highly questionable. Uh, and, you know, suggesting that uh, drinking goat milk is, is the answer to, to health or whatever mm-hmm. new, new scheme she comes up with uh, doesn't advance science. It, it retards it. Uh, is drinking poppy seed tea risky? Yes, it is. 
poppy seeds, of course, do contain small amounts of opiates. I mean, we all know that, mm-hmm. that morphine comes from the poppy. Now, the seeds themselves contain much, much less than the juice that the poppies secrete. And um, if the poppy seeds are well washed and put into poppy seed cake or whatever, there's no issue with this. But you can buy poppy seeds on the internet and they are not properly washed. Mm -hmm. And they can have significant amount of opiates and there have been, unfortunately, a number of cases where people have poisoned themselves by drinking poppy seed tea. Now, why would anyone drink poppy seed tea? Of course, because they want to get high. Yeah. And they know that... Uh, it's like mushroom they, tea or something yes, like that. Yeah. They know that opiates can, can do that. Uh, but even small amounts of opiates can cause a problem for people without having any health connotation. And uh, if we remember a classic episode of, of Seinfeld <laughs> where uh, Elaine was applying for a job and she didn't get it because they tested her urine right. and it had uh, some uh, morphine in it. And that was because she had eaten some poppy seed uh, bagel or yeah. uh, cake or whatever uh, muffin. I think yeah. it was a poppy seed muffin. This is true. And uh, many of the Seinfeld episodes were based on, uh, on real world, world experiences because you can show a positive test uh, in your urine from having eaten poppy seeds. Right. It has no consequence except for the fact that we can detect tiny amounts so that if someone is applying for a job where they will do a urine test, it's a good idea not to eat poppies that day. But that's quite different from buying loads of poppy seed on the internet yeah. and making a tea out of it. That can be toxic. Has the internet made your job, I mean, it's made it, harder. Has it made it more interesting? It's made it more interesting. In many ways, it's made it easier because I don't need to go to a library, right? right. It comes to me every, every day. I can check my journals at, you know. Right. All the scientific the, stuff. But yeah. there's also the more fringe elements that there are easier to elements. identify now. Absolutely. Right? And, uh, you know, I, I know exactly what Dr. Oz has said, uh, because as soon as the show is over, I get phone calls and emails, and they always start out with, is it true that? Right. The, uh, the answer invariably is no, or, or you know, some sort of qualification uh, of that, because what all these shows play upon is sensationalism. That's what gets them uh, you know, the, the attention. I mean, let's face it, dog bites man doesn't make news. Man bites dog will make yeah, news. Yeah. And that, of course, is what they, they emphasize. So, yes, I, I, uh, it becomes easier for me to become aware of all of these things and to mount a counterattack because I can then immediately dig out the real research from the scientific journals. But no matter what, it always comes down, whether it's pseudoscience or whether it's real science, you have to take it with a grain of salt. And that's, that's why I, I chose that, that, that title. And, uh, you know, this is, is an expression that is very common, uh, mm-hmm. but where does it come from? Interesting history, because way back in history, Mithridates, who was the king of, of Pontus, and people may have heard this story, he uh, was worried about being poisoned. And he tried to protect himself by taking small amounts of every substance that he thought was poisonous to, to develop an immunity, right. uh, which, of course, makes a little bit of, of yeah. sense. You know, I mean, that's what vaccinations yeah. do. But he had all kinds of things, from flea extracts to, to God knows what else. And these concoctions did not taste very good. And the way that he made them palatable was by adding a grain of salt. Mm. 
And the reason we use this expression, because, of course, Mithridates' efforts were useless. Yeah. You had to take it with a grain of salt. Dr. Joe, thank you so much for this. Thanks, that is all our time. The book is called A Grain of Salt, The Science and Pseudoscience of What We Eat. It is available wherever you buy fine books, in brick-and-mortar stores, online, uh, Amazon.ca, all those kind of places. Uh, the, it is number 17. Is there? Are you already working on number 18? It's almost done. It's almost <laughs> done. Of course it is. Uh, my thanks to you, Dr. Joe. My thanks to you for listening and to Robert Turner on the board. We'll speak again next week.